Amen. Well, thanks so much, Bill, for the introduction. You forgot most of my titles, but uh, oh, I'm just kidding. Uh, that's an inside joke. Uh, my name is Ryan, like Bill said, and uh, I'm the pastor over student ministries at Spring Lake Church. And uh, so I, this is, I don't get to be here very often, so it's very fun for me to get to see all of you. And uh, I just want to point out something. I'm the pastor over student ministries, but Ellen Berg and I, who's right over there, Ellen Berg and I co-lead student ministries across both campuses. She is killing it. She's doing an amazing job. And uh, yeah, and so she's over uh, any kind of student ministries things that are happening at this site, and we're kind of co-leading the ministry together. But I am the, the student ministry. How many teenagers do we have in, in the room this morning? Can you give a whoop whoop? Yeah, yeah, a couple of them. There you go. Okay, that's awesome. Very good. Uh, I, again, a happy Mother's Day. As Pastor Bill said, my mother taught me um, everything I need to know about everything I need to know, or at least that's what she told me. And so we're, we're grateful for those of you who are mothers and you're here with us. A little bit more about me. I went to the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point. Any point grads? In here, yeah, woohoo, Stevens Point, it's amazing. Uh, my junior year at Stevens Point, I took a course called New Testament and Early Christianity uh, with Professor Shani Luft. Now, Dr. Luft was a Jewish man, so he didn't believe that the New Testament, which was the book that we were studying, uh, was God's word in any sense. Uh, so that made some interesting conversations. He was teaching us about the Gospels. Uh, but he also was an atheist, so he wasn't an observant Jew. Uh, he, that was sort of his ethnic background, so that you can imagine made for some fascinating conversations as he taught us about the New Testament. And one of Dr. Luft's favorite things to do was to poke holes in the faith of those of us who came into the class uh, believing in the Bible, trusting the Bible uh, as Christians. And so one of his favorite things to do was to put up passages on the screen uh, from the Gospels, the biographies written about Jesus, and put them up and show us how they disagreed with one another, how they contradicted one another. And so he would talk in depth about what Matthew believed about Jesus. And that's different than what Mark believed and taught about Jesus. And that was very different than what Luke believed. Don't even get me started on what John uh, believed and taught about Jesus. And so we, I watched as the faith of many of my classmates who came in with a, what I would say is kind of a naive or simplistic understanding of the Bible. I watched as their faith just sort of eroded before my eyes. And if I can be really honest with you, it was a really difficult semester for me to continue to believe. Because I came in believing about this book. I came in believing that this is, this is God's word. And I was watching this man who knew it far better than I did dismantle it in front of me. It was a really difficult semester. And for me, that semester and those conversations about the Bible put this book and really God on trial some accusations, calling God a liar, or this book a liar. It's full of errors. It's full of half-truths. And that's why we're doing this series, God on Trial. For the next few weeks downtown, we're looking at accusations that people have leveled against Christianity or leveled uh, against God throughout the ages. Instead of building a positive case for why you ought to believe in Jesus or why you ought to believe in God, we're going to be doing some what we call defensive apologetics. We're playing defense, and we're going to be looking at some of the accusations. That's why I'm dressed in the monkey suit this morning, okay? If you're new, this is not the way our preachers typically dress on Sunday mornings. That's, uh, it's a little bit of a bit part. I'm playing the part of the defense lawyer, and it's as if we're putting God on the witness stand and defending him. So before we get into our topic this morning, which is the Bible, let me just set the stage of what this series is and what this series is not. 
Okay? This series is, again, a chance for us to uh, do some defending of God. We're not here to convince you if you came in with doubts or you have questions. This isn't a, uh, we don't believe we, you can be argued into believing in Christianity. I'm just trying to uh, clear up some space. Um, Pastor Tim Keller out in New York says that three things uh, need to happen for someone to come to faith in Jesus. It's a little bit simplistic, but he says three things. He says, first of all, people need to come to the end of themselves, meaning they need to believe that they need something more than themselves to have happiness, joy, those sorts of things. Secondly, they need to see a group of people, a group of Christians, to which they can see themselves belonging. And then thirdly, he says they need to have all their objections, their intellectual objections, removed. Now, I cannot do the first one for you, okay? I cannot bring you to the end of yourself, uh, nor would I want to, you know, create a tragedy in your life or something like that that brings you to the end of yourself. I can't even make you like a group of Christians, (laughs) okay? Uh, I can't do that, although we hope that that's what Spring Lake is for you. It's a group of followers of Jesus that you could see yourself belonging to, and I, I know for some of you that is your story. You've come in here, and you're like, okay, this isn't a cult. That's cool. All right, all right, these people, are not, these people are not strange. They're not weird. I could see myself belonging to this, this group. But what our series is about is looking at these objections, these roadblocks or these obstacles that get in the way of people investigating Jesus and hopefully do some ground clearing. What this series is not, this is not to put ammunition in your evangelistic guns, okay? This is not for you to go do drive-by evangelism on Facebook, and I'll be watching your Facebook feeds. If I see any mean posts, you're like quoting me uh, to your atheist friends, I'll come to your house, okay? That's why we have those connection cards to get your addresses, okay? I'll come find you. I'll come find you. That's not what this, that's not what this series is about at all. Instead, we're hoping, if you're a follower of Jesus, to help strengthen the reasons that you have for believing what you already believe. And if you're a doubter, if you're a skeptic, and you want to belong, but you don't yet believe, um, then we're just hoping to create some space for you to maybe check out who Jesus is and what he says about himself. So this morning, we are looking at the Bible, and the question before us, or the accusation in front of us is, how can we believe in the Bible? How can we claim that this is God's word if there are so many errors in it? There's so many problems with this book. Don't you know? There's so many contradictions in it. Now, just to show hands to feel kind of where the room is at, how many of you have heard something like that? Someone's leveled that against Christianity, or you've heard that kind of accusation? All right, some of us. Now, I recognize this is not uh, people's first go-to a lot of time, uh, but if you've sat in a classroom, or if you've interacted with people who have college degrees, this is pretty standard dogma. This is pretty standard objections that come against Christianity. In the following weeks, we're going to look at some of the other more personal difficulties that people have with God, like suffering. But today, uh, we're looking at the problem people have with the Bible. And I'm just going to be really straightforward. I'm going to try and, we're going to try and be honest, as we always are. Uh, but I'm going to be honest with where I'm starting from. I'm a pastor, so this shouldn't surprise you. Uh, I'm a Christian, so I believe that this book, I believe that the Bible is God's word. That it is, in fact, uh, God's word. The very words that he wants us to have. And so I think this is printed in your programs. But in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says this. It says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed. So I believe this with all my heart, that this is God's word. This is God's revelation to us, to use a big word. It's God speaking to us through human writing. And if you're a follower of Jesus, chances are you believe that too. But we have to ask ourselves a question. If you were asked, why? 
why do you believe this is God's word? You really can't say, because the Bible says so. Right? Try having a conversation with someone who doesn't believe this is God's word and tell them, well, I think it's God's word because it says it's God's word. They'll say that's a circular argument. That doesn't make any sense. So we have to ask the question, why Why do we trust the Bible? Why do we believe it is, in fact, God's word? And for me, uh, I start with Jesus. That's that's always my starting point. I just want to have the same view of the Bible that Jesus had of the Bible. Why? Because I think he was resurrected from the dead. I believe that's the best historical explanation for what happened at Easter. I believe he was resurrected from the dead, and I have not yet been resurrected from the dead. So he has, you know, I want to I take his view. I think he is God's son. So I want to see what Jesus believed about the Bible and take that same view. And as we look at the biographies about Jesus and we see how he treated the scriptures, we see that he believed they were authoritative. He often cites the Bible, the Old Testament, in his debates with the religious leaders. And, and most New Testament scholars will tell you that when Jesus says, it is written, what that is code for is, uh, God says so. <laughs> God says so. So he believes that the word, that the Bible is God's inspired word. He, again, believes it's authoritative. And if this word is God's word, so if this is God's communication, we know Jesus would have also believed Numbers, Numbers 23, 19, that says that God is not a liar. It says that God's not a human being. He can't lie. He's not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? The answer is no. God's, God's not a liar. So if Jesus believes this is God's word and God can't lie, then it follows that there are no lies in this book, right? That makes sense. It's a pretty tight, pretty tight logical argument. If this is, in fact, God's word, and if God can't lie, then it means that this book doesn't lie to us. There are no lies in it. It's wholly truthful. So that's what I assume. That's what I assume. And then when I see difficulties in the Bible, and trust me, there are some doozies. There's some serious problems. There are some difficulties to be solved in our Bibles. But when we see those, our assumption is, okay, I know not I know God's not going to lie to me. I know this book doesn't have lies in it. I know it's going to tell me true things. So then we can try and work through some of those difficulties. Uh, if you're married or if you have a significant other or just good friends, you know, they're, they're, you trust them. But every once in a while, they tell you something that you go, eh, I don't know, that doesn't lie. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Or I think that's wrong. But your first assumption is not, liar! How dare you lie to me, woman, right? You know, just, uh, you know, or man. Uh, no, that's not where you jump right away. Uh, instead, you go, okay, maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm misunderstanding. That's usually the case with me. Maybe I wasn't listening. Okay, all right. Uh, but you don't just assume they're lying. You try and work it out. Where's the miscommunication? It's the same thing with this book. When we encounter difficulties, we say, okay, Lord, God, I know you're not going to lie to me. I don't understand this. Uh, help me understand and try and work through some of the difficulties. So this morning, we're going to look at two different types of difficulties in our Bibles. This one's going to feel a little bit more like school. So I'm sorry, but those of you who love note-taking, you've got some blanks to fill in. You're all excited to get to those. I'm going to give you two different types of difficulties that we find in our Bibles. First of all, difficulties from the outside. Difficulties from the outside, or what sometimes people call errors, okay? Difficulties from the outside. That's when the Bible, what the Bible is claiming, doesn't seem to line up with what we know from outside the Bible, whether what we know from scientific research, or what we know from other historical documents, or what we know from our experience, or archaeology. So let me just rip through a couple different types of 
errors, and I'm using that in scare quotes, difficulties, and then I'm going to give you a couple examples. Is that okay? Here they are. Uh, First of all, we have scientific difficulties. That would be when the Bible seems to disagree with what we know from science. For instance, Jesus says in Mark 4, Behold, the mustard seed. It is the smallest of all the seeds. We know that the mustard seed is not, in fact, the smallest of all seeds. Is Jesus wrong? Is this an error in our Bibles? We would say, no, Jesus isn't trying to give us a horticulture. Is that a word? A horticultural lesson? Uh, He's not trying to give us a biology, a plant biology lesson. He's using something that they knew. But that would be an example of a potential scientific difficulty. Geographical or archaeological difficulties, these are when... uh, Scholars or or researchers haven't discovered a site like, oh, well, Jerusalem doesn't exist. The Bible's fiction. Oh, wait. And then they find it a couple years later, those sorts of things. So where our current archaeology does not verify what's in the Bible, those would be considered archaeological difficulties. A historical difficulty would be, again, where a Roman source or a Greek source says one thing about a historical event, and the Bible seems to say something different, and those two things don't quite line up. That'd be a historical difficulty. Now, if I gave you some examples of those, most of you would fall asleep. (laughs) So it would take even longer to explain some of them, and then it would be to show you how they're not in conflict. So if you're, you know, if you Indiana Jones out there and you want to talk archaeology, we can come, uh, we can talk afterwards. But our final one is experiential difficulties, uh, and that would be where our experience doesn't seem to line up with what the Bible says. For instance, Jesus says, uh, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. He's talking about praying. He says to the disciples, you ask for whatever you wish, and it'll be given to you. Show of hands, how many of you have ever had a prayer go unanswered? Yeah. Liar! Jesus is a liar, right? No, not quite. What's going on? We have to take Jesus' statement about prayer in context with all of what the rest of the Bible says. Sometimes God doesn't give us what we ask because he knows better. <laughs> he knows better than to give us what we ask for. So those would be some examples. Uh, let's, let's do a couple more. Here's an example of a scientific difficulty. This is Leviticus chapter 11. I'm Probably most of you read this in your quiet times this morning. Uh, these are the birds you are to regard as unclean and not eat because they are unclean. The eagle the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, any kind of black kite, any kind of raven, the horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, the little owl, the the great owl, the white owl, the desert owl, the osprey, the stork, any kind of heron, the hoopo, and the bat. Anybody see any problems with that? Is a bat a bird? No. These are the birds you're not supposed to eat, including the bat. Here we have an error, a scientific error in the Bible, right? Leviticus, they're wrong. They think bats are birds. Is that really an error? Well, well, no. The question is, is the writer of Leviticus trying to give us a taxonomy lesson? Is he trying to say, these are the animals who have wings and are not mammals? No. He's just describing flying things. In fact, if we translate that Hebrew word oaf, the one that's translated birds, if we translate it as winged creatures or or flying creatures, that might be a a better category that Hebrews would have thought in. So it's not really an error. It seems like a scientific error, uh, but if we work through it a little bit, in fact, it is not. One more uh, error or supposed error difficulty. Uh, this is from Proverbs 22, chapter 6, is it? or sorry, 22.6. Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. 
So it seems to be saying if you raise your kid to know the Bible, to follow God, that they won't turn from it when they're older. How many of you have ever known someone who was raised in the church and then left later on? Yeah. So is God, is God lying to us? Is that not true? It seems to disagree with our experience. No. If you understand Proverbs, Proverbs is not a book of prophecies. It's not a book of promises. It's not a book of predictions. It's a book of general statements about how the world usually works in God's good world. And so it is true. If you love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, often your children will follow in your footsteps. But if you're here, and maybe even some of you moms this morning, that's the pain in your heart that your children have walked away from the faith. It's not as if God has lied to you or has made you a promise he hasn't kept yet. This is not meant to be a prediction or a promise. It's a general statement. So it looks like an experiential difficulty, but in fact, not an error. So what do you do? I've got uh, little bookmarks printed out in your uh, bulletins there, just a walkthrough. If you find a difficulty or someone comes up to you and says, hey, there's a bunch of errors in the Bible, your first step is to say to them, which error are you talking about? Like, which difficulty? Because you actually want to process with people. Hopefully you have relationships with people who disagree with you. Oh, that would be something. And you want to ask, um, which difficulty are you talking about or which error? Because a lot of times we just repeat stock phrases that we've learned, like, oh, there's a bunch of errors in the Bible. And you say, okay, which one? And they say, I don't know. The Discovery Channel said there are, right? So if you actually have a conversation, uh, you want to ask which error. And then as you're actually looking at supposed errors, here's some step-by-step. First of all, don't panic. Don't panic. Take a deep breath. Can everybody go, let it out. That's really good. Okay, I felt that wind. That was powerful. Don't panic. The second thing you want to do is read the whole passage carefully. You're going to be asking yourself, have I misinterpreted this? Like, have I just misunderstood this passage? You might want to look at some other translations. Um, Our Bibles were written in Greek, the New Testament, the Old Testament in Hebrew, and a little bit of Aramaic. And our English translations do a phenomenal job of communicating what's there. But sometimes a supposed difficulty is really a translation problem. So just check a few more translations, get a couple different angles. Uh, You want to ask yourself, are there proposed solutions out there that make sense? Like, could there be a solution to this difficulty? Um, I say this jokingly, but not really jokingly. I paid thousands of dollars for the things that you guys can find on the internet for free. Okay? Not bitter about that. Not bitter. Um, But it is true. There's just a wealth of information for you online. And you can find solutions or proposed solutions to a lot of the supposed difficulties in the Bible just by Googling them, just by Googling the passage. It's amazing. So go ahead and do that. Don't be lazy. Get out there. Get on your keyboards or on your phone and look at some proposed solutions. And then lastly, if it still seems like an error, uh, do some praying. Oh, sorry. I ask, is this something that God or the Bible might uh, know better than us currently on? Perhaps, uh, for instance, like archaeology, the writers of the Bible know that a city is there, and we just haven't discovered it yet. That could be possible. And if it still seems like an error, then do some praying and ask God, okay, Lord, I don't get this. I don't understand this. This seems like a difficulty. And again, I said I'm going to be honest. There are, there are problems in our Bibles that I do not think there are good solutions for yet. There are things that I've encountered in doing this study and those sort of things that I don't have good answers for. And yet at some point we get to a place where we say, okay, I don't get it, but I, I trust. And I'm going to trust that someday we will have 
good answers. That's okay. That's a part of having faith is wrestling through some of our difficulties and doubts. So that's uh, difficulties from the outside. Let's take a look at difficulties from the inside, supposed contradictions. This would be when a part of the Bible seems to disagree with another part of the Bible, not line up with another part of the Bible. Before we give you, I'm going to give you three different reasons we might see differences uh, between them. But before I do that, I want to tell you how far away I live. Um, my wife and I bought a house near Preble High School, which is about, it's, I live three miles away. Okay, I live three miles away. Now, if you were to ask my wife, who's a little bit more precise than I am, and she would tell you, actually, Ryan's wrong, uh, we live 2.4 miles away. Would you say that those two things are in conflict one with one another? That they contradict one with one, one another? Me and Jenny? I'm saying we live three miles away. She says 2.4. Is that a contradiction? No, Why not? I'm being less precise than she is, right? I was just kind of giving you an estimate. She like looked it up on Google Maps and she's telling you 2.4. Now, if you're running a marathon and they tell you that it's 26 point, what, 26.2 miles and it's 27.2, you say liars, filthy liars, right? There's no imprecision when it comes to the cellcom, right? We want to know. I want to know when it's done. I want to know when it's done. But we do this all the time. We communicate with more or less precision. You'll see that in the Bible as well, and that accounts for some of the supposed contradictions. So you'll see a difference in precision. For instance, we have four biographies about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they record some of the same stories. Sometimes they are at odds about how many days between events. For instance, after the, uh, before the transfiguration, Mark says it's six days later. Luke says, I believe it is, no, I'm sorry, Matthew says it's six days later. Luke says it is eight days later. Aha! We did it! We found a contradiction in the Bible, right? No. Couldn't it be that Luke is just being a little bit less precise? Or maybe the other two are being less precise? In fact, Luke says it's about eight days later. It's about eight days later. So it seems like a contradiction, but in fact, one of them is just being a little bit less precise. Often in the Gospels, comparing them side by side, you'll see that Mark and Matthew, sorry, Mark and Luke have one of something, and Matthew has two. So Mark has one uh, demon-possessed man, Matthew has two. Mark has one donkey riding in Jerusalem, Matthew has two. Mark has one angel at the tomb, Matthew has two. Matthew has a thing for twos. We don't really know what it is. That's kind of the pattern. The question is, is that a contradiction? We would say no, because if I came this morning and I said, hey, I was, I was at Spring Lake and I saw Peter there, and you said, aha, liar, Bill was there too. I'm like, what? no, wait, I wasn't trying to tell you everybody that was at church this morning. I was just telling you who I saw. We can leave people out, and that's not a contradiction. Uh, in fact, it's just a little bit less precision. Sometimes, this will trip you up, sometimes the biblical authors uh, disagree on the words of Jesus. Let me show you. This is a little bit uh, interesting. This is from the Last Supper where Jesus is uh, giving the instructions. From Mark, he says, he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank it from it. So this is Jesus. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Next. Matthew says, he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, and then Matthew adds, for the forgiveness of sins. Luke, on the other hand, says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out, not for many, not for the forgiveness of sins, but it's poured out for you. 
What did Jesus actually say? That's what I want to know. That's what you want to know because we live in the 21st century in a world of cameras on everybody's phones. We want to say, what actually happened? I want to know what he said. The writers of the Gospels are not concerned with the same level of precision that we are. They're telling us the gist of what Jesus said and truly reporting, accurately reporting what Jesus said, but not with the same level of precision that you and I sometimes want them to have. So there's difference in precision. Uh, Next, the reason you might see conflict is potentially a difference in purpose, a difference in purpose. My wife and I met that same junior year that I was at Stevens Point. We met, and uh, when I tell the story of how we met, I want you to be there. I want you to feel the sweat in my armpits and smell the little Caesars. Smell the little Caesars. I walked into the room there in the mission strip meeting, and boom, the light kind of fell over her face, and she went, (sighs) she kind of threw her hair back. And I walked over to her, and I gave her like a witty line. girl and she responded and there was some banter like I want you to feel that you know what I mean and uh, when Jenny tells the story how did you and Ryan meet she says we met at a mission trip meeting at church (laughs) I'm like you're leaving out all the good parts you know you know why why is there that difference why is there a difference Uh, because there's a difference in purpose I want to draw you in I want you to feel I want to entertain you a little bit uh, Jenny just wants to give you the bare facts, right? She just wants you to know what happened. Sometimes you'll see a difference in purpose in uh, different parts of the Bible relating the same thing. So for instance, a lot of people have noted that there are two genealogies of Jesus in the Gospels recording Jesus' ancestors. There's one in Luke 3 and there's one in Matthew chapter 1. And they, if you put them side by side, they're very different from one another. Some of the same names, but for the most part, they're very different. And Scholars have wondered for a long time, like, why the, why the difference? And everybody agrees it's because they're doing something different. There's a different purpose. Maybe Matthew is giving us Jesus' royal lineage, or maybe giving us Joseph's lineage, while Luke is giving us Mary's lineage, something like that. But everybody agrees there's different purposes to those genealogies. So it seems like a contradiction, but in fact, they just have different purposes in communicating. And lastly, a difference in emphasis. We might see a difference in emphasis. Um, you do this with your kids, if you have kids, and my parents, my parents did this to me. At some point, uh, my parents said to me, buddy, Ryan, we're proud of you. We're proud of you no matter what. If you win the game, if you get good grades, if you're successful, if you lose, if you fail, we are so proud of you. And then, like you score the game-winning goal or you do something really impressive and your parents go, oh, we're so proud of you, right? And they give you a big hug, we're so proud of you. And then you get caught in a lie or you bring home the car totaled, right? And they say, we're disappointed. I'm disappointed in you. I'm not mad. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Just disappointed. Now, question, are those two things in conflict with one another? We're proud of you no matter what. We're proud of you no matter what. But I'm disappointed in you. No, no, no. That, that's not a conflict. It's not a contradiction. It's just emphasizing different things. Aren't they both true? Aren't they both true? It's just emphasizing different things. You'll see that in the Bible as well. Not a contradiction, but a tension. A tension of two true things. Let me show you this from John. The book of John, which is again one of the biographies about Jesus. The question is, did Jesus come into the world to save the world or to judge the world? John three seventeen. For God did not send his son, that's Jesus, into the world to condemn the world. So not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See the next one? John 
chapter 12, if anyone hears my words and does not, but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come into the, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus is not here to judge. He's here to save. Look at the next one. John 5, moreover, the Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that is Jesus. He has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. And then finally, John 9, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Is Jesus here to judge or to save? This isn't even different books. This is the same author. The truth is, it's, it's both. It's both. That Jesus came to seek and save the lost. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus came to save, to die on our behalf. And yet, we also know that in coming, Jesus is a fork in the road. That you either worship Jesus or you do not. You cannot be neutral when it comes to Jesus. And so he enacts a sort of judgment. And we know also that one day we'll stand before Jesus and be held accountable for our lives. So it's not a contradiction. It is a, it's a tension. Question, is God totally sovereign over everything? Is he in control of everything? Or do you have, do you make personal decisions that you're responsible for? You're going to find both in the Bible. You're going to find both of those emphases. Yes, God is totally sovereign. Yes, you make choices. How do we put those two things together? That's a, that's a tension. That is a tension. Is salvation by grace alone a free gift from God? You don't have to do anything to be saved? Or do you have to live a life of obedience to Jesus? It's both. It's both those things. We know that faith without works is dead. It's not faith at all. There are these tensions, these tensions in the Bible that are not, in fact, contradictions, uh, but they're difference in emphasis. So what do you do? What do you do if someone says, look, there's these contradictions in the Bible? Again, first thing is don't panic. Take a deep breath. Some of you had your, you know, your mental gears going. I see the gears turning. You're like, oh, I don't like this. Right? Don't panic. Read each passage separately. Try and understand each of them in context. Ask the question, could they be doing different but not opposing things? Ask, could this be a tension potentially and not a contradiction? Look for proposed solutions. Again, Google. Uh, and if it still seems like a contradiction, do some praying. Ask God, okay, Lord, I, I don't get how these two things fit together. This seems like a total contradiction to me. I trust you. Help me to trust you more. And ask him, ask him to give you the faith to do that. Again, uh, we don't always have to have all the answers. Sometimes we just need to, to trust. I'm not doing anything this morning new uh, or revolutionary. This is a guy by the name of Augustine writing in the 400s AD. He says this about the Bible. He says, if you chance upon anything in scripture that doesn't seem true, you must not conclude that the sacred writer made a mistake. Rather, your attitude should be, perhaps the manuscript is faulty, or the version is not accurate, or perhaps you yourself do not understand the matter. Right, so we start with this trust. Okay, God's not gonna, God's not gonna lie to me. And then when we find difficulties, we try and we try and work through them bit by bit. Now, I just want to address the person who's here this morning. If you're here and you got drugged to church this morning because it's Mom's Day, or you're just like a little bit skeptical about all this stuff, you're like, I don't buy, I don't buy any of this yet. I can imagine how this sounds to you. Okay, you would, you're sitting there thinking, this is circular reasoning. This is bias confirmation. 
Like you've already decided there aren't errors in the Bible. You've already decided there aren't contradictions. And then when you come to a contradiction, when someone shows you a contradiction, you just explain it away. You had your mind made up before you even started. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be real with you. That's true. That, that's where I start. Like I said, I have, I've had a relationship with Jesus. I've had this experience of Jesus in my life. He's changed me from the inside out. I'm convinced that his resurrection really happened. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. And so I start from a position of, of trust. That's true. But if you were being honest, if you're that person, if you're a skeptic, you do the exact same thing. None of us comes to our worldview in a vacuum, looking at all of the objections to your beliefs and then dismissing them one by one by one until you come to this, oh, now I know everything. I'm totally 100% sure in, in what I believe. We all are persuaded by something. And then when we have objections that come in from the outside, we, we deal with them. That's why you believe what you do about politics. That's why you believe what you believe about all sorts of matter of things. I'm just saying my life has been changed, transformed by Jesus I believe he's resurrected from the dead. And so then when we see supposed difficulties in the Bible, we deal with them bit by bit. I think that makes a lot of sense. And so if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, my hope for you this morning is that you would, you would understand this, that your, our faith, my faith, is not in our problem solving. It's in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Our faith is in Jesus. Like my, I trust him. I, I don't have confidence that I can deal with every problem. I don't, I don't have all the answers. I, I admitted that. I don't even have all the answers to some of the things that I looked up in studying this for this message. But my faith is not in my ability to solve puzzles. Our, our faith is in Jesus. It's our trust in, our trust in him. So if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, you can have confidence that this word is true because it really is God's word. It really is God's communication to us. And then if we're faced with difficulties, we can say, all right, I trust you, Lord. I know you're not going to lie to me. I trust you. Help me to understand this better. Help me to love you more. Help me to obey you more. It's to that end that we'll pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I pray that over the next few weeks as we continue to look at accusations or problems that people have with you and that maybe even we have that we're here this morning and we're wrestling and we have big big insurmountable doubts i pray that you help us to understand you more clearly would you teach us about yourself show us who you are but more than that i pray for the power and the motivation to obey you to not just be hearers of your word but doers of your word lord please grant us uh, comfort that you're with us, even in the midst of our doubt, even in the midst of our struggles and trials. And you uh, want to continue to have a relationship with us, even when we're wrestling. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.